The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. A stunning $137 million verdict. Unprecedented in a racial discrimination in employment case. But that's what a jury has ordered Tesla to pay to a former black elevator operator. Owen Diaz claimed that the electric car maker turned a blind eye to racial taunts and offensive graffiti at its factory in Fremont, California. This is about a, uh, a verdict that a, a jury made to, uh, to let uh, Tesla know that they're being put on notice to clean up their factories. Joining me is employment law expert Anthony Ancidi, a partner at Proskauer Rose. Tony, the jury deliberated for only about four hours, came back with a verdict of $6.9 million in compensatory damages and $130 million in punitive damages. Well, obviously, it's a whopper. There have been very few verdicts in the employment area in California that have come anywhere close to that. The amount of about $185 million against AutoZone a few years ago on behalf of a uh, female employee who sued. And there was another one against a hospital that was around the same amount. But it's even in California a rarity to see verdicts of a magnitude like this. It does happen on occasion, but it's more frequent that you see, at least in Los Angeles and in San Francisco, verdicts that are still very large in the 10, 15, 20 million dollar range. And those happen with a great deal of frequency these days. And the reason is that in California, basically, juries are unlimited in terms of the amounts of money they are allowed to award in cases like this. There are limits in some jurisdictions. There is not such a thing in California. One of the jurors said that the intent was to send a strong message to the company that it has to take racial harassment seriously. So they intended that punitive damage award to be so high. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, the other thing that I've detected in some of the interviews with jurors that I have read and some of the other stories is that the, the jury particularly did not like the fact that Diaz was a contractor as opposed to a direct employee of Tesla. I think probably what happened was that um, the plaintiff's lawyers probably tried to make as much of that as they possibly could by suggesting that uh, Tesla was uh, trying to, you know, pull a fast one by retaining these workers as contract employees as opposed to direct employees. And I can see how, if presented in the right way, that could be quite damaging to Tesla. So I detected that was going on. In addition to, of course, the allegations that existed with respect to the use of the N-word and the drawings and other visual depictions that uh, have been widely reported that allegedly occurred in this workplace. The employment cases against Tesla usually go through arbitration, but because he was a contract worker, Diaz didn't sign a mandatory arbitration agreement. So this is the first time that Tesla has had to face these kind of charges at a trial. Ironically, because he wasn't an employee uh, and he was a contractor, he apparently was not 
uh, subject to an arbitration obligation, which uh, had he been a direct employee, he probably would have been. Tesla said, while we strongly believe that these facts don't justify the verdict, we do recognize that in 2015 and 2016, we were not perfect. We're still not perfect, but we've come a long way from five years ago. Do you think that means they're going to accept the verdict and not appeal? Oh, I'm sure they are going to appeal. And in fact, even before they appeal, what is almost certain to happen is the company will file a number of post-trial motions with the judge in the case, meaning that they will ask the judge on the case to reduce the verdict. And judges have that power to do that. They don't have to do it, obviously, but they, they can be convinced by way of a motion and the citation, obviously, to a case law that would suggest that this verdict obviously cannot stand. And I would tell you for sure, it obviously cannot stand. It is way outside what would be uh, acceptable by any appellate court. So in other words, the trial court judge can try to fix this even before it would get to an appeal. Typically, what that looks like is the trial judge will conditionally reduce the verdict. And if the plaintiff refuses to accept the reduction, the judge may order a new trial, either uh, overall or on the damages phase. Uh, or some combination of the two. So is that because the punitive damages are almost 20 times as large as the actual damages? Explain the relation between punitive and compensatory. In an employment case, a verdict has a number of component parts. Number one usually is lost wages, both past and future lost wages. I have not seen any report at all in this case about lost wages for Diaz. He was a relatively short-term employee there. My understanding is he was an elevator operator who worked there for about a year uh, before he quit his employment. Uh, He claimed he was constructively terminated because of uh, the harassment that was going on. So what I gather from that is that he probably found another job um, relatively quickly after he quit this job. Um, So that is not a major part of this uh, verdict. The second component, in addition to lost wages, uh, and this is where the money really starts uh, to uh, mount in a verdict like this, is emotional distress damages. And in this case, he was awarded, obviously, substantial amount of emotional distress damages, close to $7 million. So that will be the first point of attack, both at the trial court level and on an appeal from Tesla in the event that the case doesn't get settled. And of course, that could also happen. There could be a settlement amount. What do I mean by the first point of attack? What Tesla's lawyers, I think, will argue is that even though the the facts are as they are in this case, even assuming everything that Diaz alleged and everything the jury believed uh, happened here did happen, $6.9 million is still a very, very large amount of money for emotional distress damages. And there's a, a relatively recent case in California where there was a $3.5 million emotional distress damages award. This was uh, against the city of West Covina. It was an it was a employment case. And the appellate court in that case said $3.5 million in emotional distress was, quote, shockingly disproportionate given what the harm was that was proved at the time of the trial. That was a whistleblower case. And so as a result of that, the, the appellate court reduced that uh, $3.5 million emotional distress damages down to $1.1 million. So I think there's a lot of uh, reduction that Tesla will seek just on the emotional distress component. And then the third component is punitive damages, as you mentioned. 
And there's another recent case from California. These are appellate court cases, so they are binding on uh, at least state courts in these uh, situations, where the court said that a two-to-one ratio of punitive to compensatory damages was appropriate. So in that case, uh, the court reduced uh, a larger to $2.1 million punitive to compensatory. So if that were the case, even if the $7 million were to uh, stay in terms of emotional distress, there couldn't be more than, say, $14 million in uh, punitive damages on top of the $7 million. Is there a possibility of a settlement even after the jury trial? Yes, absolutely. Uh, of course, the plaintiff's lawyer has all aces <laughs> in terms of these negotiations. <laughs> uh, it's difficult to upset a jury verdict typically, but as I just said, I think the the greatest set of uh, weapons that will be used by Tesla in trying to uh, reverse this or change this will be to attack the amounts because they really are outside the scope of what appellate courts would permit in a case such as this. And therefore, I think the judge in this matter may be governed by that. There may have also been things that occurred at trial that, that I'm just not aware of that uh, Tesla will say uh, prejudiced them or harmed them or that were an abuse of discretion by the judge, something like that. Those are all things that I'm sure that they're thinking about it at this point at Tesla. So let's say you're defending Tesla. You have this verdict. This is the second time in recent months that Tesla has been found liable in a case involving claims of race-based discrimination. What do you do in the other cases that Tesla is facing? What kind of defense can you put up? Well, every case is different, of course, and every employee who is coming at them is going to be somewhat different, although there also is a class action, as I understand it, pending against them. So that actually would be a situation where the lawyers are claiming that there was actually commonality in terms of what happened to their various clients. But just taking them one by one, you know, every employee has a different set of circumstances, and uh, I think each will have to be evaluated. It is not too much of a leap of faith, though, to assume that it's going to be more difficult for Tesla going forward because now there's blood in the water. And I suspect that no plaintiff's lawyer is going to want to settle cases if they think they've got any facts that are even close to those that existed in this case. There's an investor proposal up for consideration at the annual shareholder meeting that calls for the board to oversee preparation of a report about how the company's use of mandatory arbitration affects employees and corporate culture. From the verdict in this case compared to the $1 million verdict in the arbitration case, can we see the difference when a jury's involved. Absolutely. This is a, uh, a laboratory, uh, <laughs> this is a laboratory example of the difference between arbitration and jury trials. Uh, I, I, I was struck by um, the comparison you may remember from the old Cold War years between East Berlin and West Berlin. You had similar circumstances that existed in East Berlin and West Berlin. One was a communist dictatorship and one was a democracy. Uh, and it wasn't difficult to, to, to look at the difference between those two systems. What has just happened to Tesla is uh, almost identical to that kind of experiment. We have a black employee who's claiming that he was subjected to uh, racial harassment and discrimination in the workplace, and he has signed an arbitration agreement, that employee got a million dollars, which is still a very sizable uh, award, obviously. That was back in August. Uh, 
Uh, a couple of months later, another employee, another black employee, claims he was subjected to almost the same kind of, if not exactly the same kind of, harassment and discrimination, and he gets $137 million uh, from a jury. Uh, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to say that one system is more employer-friendly and one system is more employee-friendly, and that is all you really need to know about why plaintiffs like jury trials and employers tend to prefer arbitration. In terms of that board sure. meeting, which is tomorrow, I think, you know, obviously, it's never a good time, I suspect, for a company to uh, suffer uh, an adverse verdict like this. But the timing could not be better for Tesla in terms of the board, which I believe is against the proposal that is uh, going to be considered tomorrow uh, on the issue of uh, reporting and uh, investigating whether arbitration is better uh, than jury trials. Uh, Tesla presumably is in the business of making money, and I can't imagine uh, any investor who would come to the conclusion that they are better off suffering a $137 million verdict versus potentially a million-dollar award from an arbitrator. I think uh, those results speak for themselves. Thanks, Tony. That's Anthony Ancidi, a partner at Proskauer Rose. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello, I'm Bob Ross. If this is your first time with us, then let me extend a personal invitation for you to get out your brushes and paint along and spend a relaxing half hour enjoying some of nature's masterpieces. That's why I paint. It's because I can create the kind of world that I want. And I can make this world as happy as I want it. The Netflix documentary about painter Bob Ross, Happy Accidents, Betrayal and Greed, is about an unhappy accident in the intellectual property fight over the rights to Ross's name and image after his death. His son Steve lost the long court battle over Ross's intellectual property because of the corporate structure of Bob Ross, Inc., his father's company. Steve Ross was left with nothing, despite what his father's will dictated. Joining me is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Rosenman. So, Terry, for those who haven't seen the PBS show or all the products and merchandise out there, tell us a little about Bob Ross. Well, Bob Ross, like many young men of his generation, had to do time with the military, and he enlisted with the Air Force and had some time on his hands while he was stationed in Alaska and took a class from the USO on basic oil painting technique, fell in love with it. And when his career in the Air Force concluded, and he did a 20-year, full 20-year career, he wanted to bring all that he had learned about painting to common people like him. And so he started a show called The Joy of Painting, which eventually caught on from a single station in Indiana to nationwide. And he became a very popular teacher of what's now called do-it-yourself painting for better part of 12 years across the entire PBS network of stations. His approach was very similar to Mr. Rogers and Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, 
that is very positive and upbeat and uplifting and looking for the beauty and joy in things. And this was seen in the paintings that he taught folks to paint, just very happy paintings. He often referred to clouds as these happy little clouds floating across the sky. It was all very delightful. And then he sort of fell out of favor. And in the last few years, he is suddenly back in favor again. PBS is once again running his shows. You are seeing his image on virtually everything having to do with painting, paint brushes, paint types, paint starter kits. His image was even on a lunchbox recently. It's coffee cups, T-shirts, costumes, pajamas, blankets, jigsaw puzzles, on and on. And, his... and, and, and June, it's this commercialization that you're referring to there that is the cause of the legal problems here. Because at its core, the intellectual property issues at stake here involve what's known as right of publicity, which a lot of people are unaware of. Can you will your publicity rights to someone else? It depends on which state you live in. Rights of publicity are not federally recognized intellectual property rights. To the extent that they exist at all, they exist as a creature of state law. And according to one study I've seen, approximately two-thirds of the states in the United States have these rights to publicity laws, and they can, if the state legislature deems it's appropriate, provide for the inheritability of these publicity rights. And so it really, at the end of the day, depends in which state the owner of the publicity rights is considered a resident of at the time of his or her death. Ross intended to give the rights to his son and his half-brother. He even altered his will with a clause that specified that his name, likeness, voice, and visual, written, or otherwise recorded work would go to his son and his half-brother. So why didn't that happen? Here we have an example of not merely the rights of publicity passing by way of a state law, you know, in the normal course to the next of kin, but you have Bob Ross prior to death making an affirmative representation that he wanted these rights of publicity to pass on to his son and, and brother. And yet that did not happen. And why did it not happen? By happenstance. The way that Bob Ross set up his company, which is called Bob Ross Inc., defeated the intent of his will or the estate laws of his home state. The way Bob Ross Inc. was set up, it involved a licensing of all intellectual property rights from Bob Ross to this company, Bob Ross Inc. And that might have been fine in the normal course if he was the only owner of Bob Ross Inc., then those rights would have passed through his estate. But he was not the only owner of Bob Ross, Inc. The owners were himself, his wife, and two um, of their friends, the Kowalskis, who had assisted in setting up and launching his painting business. And moreover, the way Bob Ross, Inc. was set up was that stock, if you will, those ownership rights, passed by contract upon the death of any of the other owners. So when Bob Ross's wife predeceased him, her ownership in Bob Ross Inc. passed to the other three owners. And then when Bob Ross passed away next, his rights passed to the Kowalskis. And so simply by the happenstance of the order of death, the Kowalskis ended up with all of the ownership of Bob Ross Inc. And Bob Ross Inc. owned all of the intellectual property rights of Bob Ross, which included the right of publicity, according to the court. 
Do you think that Bob Ross was confused when he made that partnership agreement because later he's trying to give away his publicity rights to his son and half-brother? Well, June, those facts certainly suggest that he did not understand what he was doing or else he would not at a later date have attempted to bequeath those rights of publicity to his son and his brother. It is unclear to me whether he had legal representation at the time that he established Bob Ross, Inc. and set up this formula by which, in effect, there was a lottery as to who survived the longest amongst the owners of Bob Ross, Inc. and therefore ended up with the intellectual property right. But it is certainly a cautionary tale for all creators who have intellectual property rights that they have to obtain competent intellectual property counsel with respect to any aspect of those intellectual property rights, whether it's setting up a corporation, whether it's doing licensing agreements, whether it's even doing your will. There's some debate about whether publicity rights should be transferable. What's your opinion? So it's a very good question, and one that you correctly point out is being debated at the academic level. My personal view is that this sort of intellectual property right has to be transferable. To prevent such a transfer would take away from the original owner of those rights, in this case, Bob Ross, the ability to monetize his right of publicity by transferring, selling, licensing it to some other company that may be able to make good use of it. And if you prevent him from doing that, you prevent him from monetizing fully his name and likeness, which in this case were very valuable. Thanks, Terry. That's Terrence Ross of Catton Rosenman. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.